The last time I was here two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' authority over disciples and how he gets to choose the terms upon which people follow him. Well, today, we'll see a couple other things about this portrait of Jesus that Matthew seeks to paint, that Jesus has authority over disaster, over demons, and over our depravity. Let's begin by looking at this story that Matthew tells in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. Three little vignettes, three little portraits. And you'll remember the last time we gathered together, uh, Jesus was preparing to go on a sailing trip. And as he was preparing for that, some would-be disciples came to him and asked if they could follow him. Well, that episode has concluded. And in verse 23, we pick up where we left off. As he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly, these fishermen on this boat encounter not just a storm. The scripture says a violent storm. The word for violent is actually seismos. It's a storm of seismic proportions, perhaps caused by a landslide or some kind of earthquake. But suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat that they were in was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up saying, Lord, save us. We're going to die. But he said to them, why are you fearful, you of little faith? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? When we talk about Jesus' authority over disaster, we see that Jesus has the power to hush the fiercest forces of nature. It's very clear from this story. The seasoned fishermen used to being uh, on the uh, Sea of Galilee are roughed up by the storm. It is not an average storm. And I think the thing that is interesting to note is that as Jesus made his journey from the Sermon on the Mount to the city of Capernaum, we saw Jesus saving all kinds of people. He saved a leper from his leprosy. He saved the centurion's slave from his terrible disease. He saves Peter's mother-in-law from this fever, this malaria-like condition that she is suffering from. And here we see that the disciples need saved too. They've encountered a circumstance that they don't quite know how to react. Some commentators even say, because we look at the next picture, you'll see Jesus is crossing the sea to have an appointment with a demon-possessed man. Some commentators, because of that context, say what is happening in the boat right now is Satan making an attempt to keep Jesus from getting over there. So some say that the violence of the storm is perhaps even supernatural in its origin. That Jesus is going to rescue a man enslaved to demon possession. And Satan is doing everything possible to keep him from getting there. Now, the Bible doesn't say that explicitly. It says it's a violent storm. What is the source of that violence? We don't know. But what happens when the storm occurs? What do these disciples, these paragons of faith, these models of virtue do? Their knees shake and they go, Lord, save us. We're going to die. 
It's good because the last time we looked at a would-be disciple, right before Jesus got in the boat, he was teacher. Now he's what? Lord. Where do we find Jesus? Asleep in the boat. Now, does that, um, does that surprise you? Is Jesus just, does he not care? You know, it's interesting. I don't sleep well away from my home. I didn't sleep well last night. I'm still trying to figure out where, what, where my mind is, which time zone it, it decided to land in, because it's not Eastern Standard Time yet. It'll be a few days for that to kind of come back. But when you have a deep and easy trust, and you feel safe, what do you have permission to do? Sleep. Well. Deeply. Soundly. You ever experience that kind of sleep? It's like super sleep. It's not just sleep. It's like you feel recharged. Your batteries feel, you feel fully alive, fully strong. While the disciples absolutely freaked out. Jesus could sleep like the proverbial baby. Why? Because he knew all things, even this storm, were in his father's hand. And so this picture of repose, of calm, of trust, this picture of lack of faith. So they wake him up. Jesus, don't you care? And before Jesus does anything, he's trusting God. He's not worried. And he sees these frantic faces of the disciples leaning over his bed saying, Lord, don't you care? What are you talking about? God's in charge of this. And before he does anything, kind of like a parent with his kids, he instructs them. God, we need saved here real quick. And Jesus says, okay, you want me to do something about the storm? Here's a question for you. Why are you fearful? You have little faith. Not no faith, but just ineffective faith. Deficient faith. So Jesus in this one sentence is providing a mini lecture saying, friends, I trust my father and you should too. They've seen his teachings and his miracles, but they still don't quite trust him. They trust him enough to wake him up because they think that he can do something. They know that he said that, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The creatures may have more comfort than he does, but they have this inkling that he can actually do something about the created order. What is encouraging about this? One of the points of application is your faith doesn't have to be perfect for God to help you. Even when faith is weak and fearful, God hears and he acts. He doesn't say, well, I was gonna calm the storm, but seeing that your faith is so weak, we'll just ride this one out. He calls out their deficiency. And even though they're weak and fearful, he hears and he acts. And what does he do? It says he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea. We don't even know what he said. We just have the report that he said something. And what happened? 
there was great calm. I don't know if you follow the stories in the news about some of these huge wildfires that occur out west. But as they give the reports of the planes flying overhead and the the, um, firefighters on the ground, they will give you a report of how much the fire is contained. 20% contained. Which means 80% uncontained. Because it takes a while to calm a force of nature down. But yet when Jesus spoke, the winds died. And even more amazingly, the lake went placid. It's not like the waves were big and then they were medium and then they were small and then they were... The waves immediately ceased. They were hushed. He has the power to do that. Here's the problem with with this passage because sometimes we are tempted to make this passage about a force of nature about our problems. Just as Jesus calmed the storm, the mini hurricane, well, he can take care of the storms in your life. Let's make it a metaphor. The problem is in this passage, the focus is not on us and our storms. It is on Jesus and his absolute uniqueness. Who is this man who wind and wave obey him? The focus is on him not on what he can or can't do for us. This passage is not so much designed to pluck us up in hardship as much as it is to show us this picture of Christ that is beautiful. The storm may never come in your life. The storm that you're facing may end soon. Regardless of the circumstances, this Christ is supreme over all of them, no matter what. The God who created the universe is with you. And that should give you comfort, more than thinking that Jesus is just planning his daily calendar out around your activities and difficulties. Well, the story moves on. To continue talking about Jesus' uniqueness and his authority in verses 28 through 34. They... continue on their little three-hour tour. They get their little boat across the lake, and you can almost imagine. It's kind of like when Ed and I got off the plane the other day. We kind of wanted to kiss the ground when we finally got back to America. 59 hours of travel. We were glad to be home. And you have to imagine that those disciples, when they got through that storm and and the, 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 the bow of that ship crossed over on the beach, the disciples were ready to have a little party. Oh, yes! Dry land! Guess what happens next? A demon-possessed maniac comes running down the hill to be their welcome committee. Ay, ay, ay. You know, out of the storm, into this. Who wants to meet a demon-possessed maniac? The disciples are going, what in the world? Can we rewind and, like, start over our day? First we go through this crazy storm. Now we have this crazy person. Listen to the story. When they had come to the other side, to the region of the gatherings, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could even pass by that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, 
send us into the herd of pigs. Then if you have a red letter edition of the scriptures, in this whole episode, Jesus says one word. It's right there. Go, he told them. So when they came out, they entered the pigs, and suddenly the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended them fled, and they went to the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that point, the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. We see in this story that Jesus has the power to make supernatural enemies flee. They move from chaos in nature to chaos in man. They move from natural disaster to demon possession. From forces of nature to forces that are supernatural. They think they've reached land and they found relief. And they have a very different experience is they're accosted by this, these crazy demon-possessed men. <clears throat> there are many things about this story that are interesting. I'll just highlight a couple here. The disciples just asked a really important question when Jesus calmed the sea. They said, Who is this man? Who is this man? Now, I'm not for grading the disciples on a curve, but this is still very early in Jesus' ministry. The disciples are still figuring things out. So here's, here's a real practical question for you. Do you know more about Christ today than when you first believed? Yes! So let's give the disciples a little bit of a break. They, they have been with Jesus perhaps only for a couple months. They're not, they've not graduated quite yet. They are still growing in their understanding. But here's the point. They're on the boat, and the disciples don't quite have it figured out who Jesus is. They get off the boat. Two demon-possessed men come running down the hill. And what's the first thing they say? What do you have to do with us, son of God? The disciples doubt who Jesus is. The demons got it figured out. They know who he is. There's no question for them. You know, uh, survey, we've surveyed 100 people, and you know, here's what the opinion polls say about you now. The disciples don't have Jesus' identity figured out, but the demons are orthodox to a T. They know exactly who Jesus is. They recognize him as the Son of God, and they hate and loathe everything about him. But they're powerless to do anything. You see what the demons have to consent to do? Hey, have you, come to, have you come to fight before like the fight starts? And then it says they begged him. If you're going to cast us out, throw us into the pigs. They know they're going to lose. They know that judgment is coming. Have you come to torment us before the time of torment? But still they rebel. The demons' effect on these men, these two, resulted in total isolation. Completely destroyed their social lives. They live among the tombs. They're not even possible of rational conversation. 
Do you see how they responded? When they see Jesus and his kind of merry band of adventurers land on the beach, how do they respond to him? They scream, they shriek, they yell. And these demons are committed to ultimate destruction. While they crave spiritual destruction, they will settle for physical destruction. And if they can't wreak spiritual havoc in the men, what's their request? Put us in the pigs so we can tear something up. It's a terrible picture of Christ who's asleep in the boat while the storms rage on. And these demons who seek to wreak havoc wherever they can go. They drown the herd of pigs. And in contrast to the screaming, shrieking, and yelling of the demon-possessed men, Jesus says, go. No learned formula, no special mantra, no great effort of speech, no eloquence, no complex vocabulary, two letters, go. And these spiritual forces of darkness flee. Who is this man? Who has this kind of authority? Point of application. Why do the demons fear Jesus? Why do the demons fear Jesus? Because of what they believe. They fear him because of what they believe. They know that he is the son of God. Why do the disciples fear? Because of unbelief. The demons fear because of what they know. But when we're afraid, isn't it because of what we don't know? You know it's odd and this is a really weird application to me to make but if we today were as smart as the demons we would never have anything to fear the rest of our lives you get that if, if we believed in the identity of who Jesus was the way that these demons did we would have nothing to fear what can Separate us from the love of God in Christ. Can height, can depth, can, can expanse? Well, how big must something be built to do this? And yet we constantly struggle with fear because of our unbelief. When the truth is that Christians of all people should be the most secure. Not because of our zip code, not because of a big house, not because of a good job, an awesome promotion, a stable economy but because what Jesus knows, that God has us in his hands. And so the question that Jesus asked the disciples in the boat comes back to us here. Why do you fear, O ye of little faith? See, your fear is not a function of your circumstances. Your fear is a function of of your unbelief. So the pig herders, what do they do? Because they're now practically unemployed. (laughs) 
their whole herd has done swan dives into the lake. And so the townspeople come. The herdsmen go back to the town, and it says that they told them everything that happened, but especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. Here are the men who are closest to the sense of loss. Are they, they, yeah, they tell them about the pigs, but what do they especially tell people about? Wait till you see what Jesus did to these two men. They're normal. Yet when the townspeople come to him, they're not concerned with the exceptional work that Jesus has performed upon the men. They're concerned personally about the economic ramifications for their city. And in a tragedy of immense proportions, while the demons begged Jesus to be cast into the pigs, the same word is used for the townspeople in their response to Jesus. They begged him to leave. The demons begged to be cast into the pigs. The townspeople beg Jesus to leave their region. We don't just not want you in Rock Hill. We don't want you in New York County. Be gone. They didn't rejoice at the miraculous healing. They didn't bring their sick to him for miracles. They're so upset at how Jesus has messed with their personal economy that they allowed pigs to matter more than people. Their heartlessness doesn't win, though. From the parallel passage about this story, we see that one of the demon-possessed men, once he's healed, asks Jesus, Hey, can I get in the boat with you? Can I be one of your disciples? And Jesus says, no, since they won't let me stay here, they need a missionary. So you're it. So even though they won't let Jesus stay, they revoke his passport. They terminate his visa. Jesus has a heart for people that reject him, and he leaves them a missionary. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, our last snapshot. Jesus has demonstrated his authority over natural disasters, over demonic oppression. And the climax comes in verses 9, 1 through 8, as Jesus demonstrates authority over man's depravity. Jesus, in verse 1, got into the boat, crossed over, and he came to his own town, back to Capernaum. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic, laying on a mat. And seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turned to the paralytic and said, get up. Pick up your mat and go home. And he got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to a man. Matthew likes to tell his miracle stories in sets of three. And as we look at this story about the storm and about the uh, casting out of the demons, and then we get to this story about the paralytic who comes for healing and gets forgiveness. Is there a more beautiful picture of this man with authority forgiving this one? 
Men are concerned about their friend. Perhaps it was a work accident. He is now paralyzed. And if he is going to get around, someone is going to have to carry him. You recognize the story. It's told in greater detail in Mark, where they dig a hole through the roof to allow their friend to come down in front of Jesus because of the great crowd. Matthew deals with the story with much more... um, uh, he, he, He compresses it. They know that Jesus can help. And they come and they bring their friend, and it's a silent moment. Jesus surrounded by a crowd, but not a word from the crowd. There's not a word from the friends. There's not a word from the patient. And there's not a word from Jesus. You have a parable that's being acted out. And it says Jesus sees their faith in his move. Whose faith? The faith of the friends? The faith of the crowd? The faith of the patient? But Jesus sees their faith and he's moved So what does Jesus say when he breaks the silence? He says, son, have courage. Your sins are forgiven. There's a problem. His friends didn't bring him to be forgiven. Did they? His friends brought him to be healed. And so if you... Put yourself in the man's mat, not in his shoes. What would you think when Jesus says, Hey, paralyzed guy, good news for you, you're forgiven. Well, thank you for nothing. I can't walk, Jesus. If you were the friend who's heard the stories of this miracle worker and you have found a way to get a guy on a mat up on a roof, dig a hole, lower him down, in the hopes that Jesus will heal him. And he says, you're forgiven. How would you feel if you were the friend of that man? How would you react when Jesus offers him forgiveness? Um, Jesus, is it forgiveness and healing? You know, dot, dot, dot. No. It's just forgiveness. See, Jesus knows what our deepest, most important need is, even though we don't. This whole episode infuriates the Jewish leaders who end up asking the same questions that the disciples did. They got all upset. This infuriated him. And they said, who is this man who thinks that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive. So they understand that this is a clear claim to divinity. All of this happens internally. There's no talk. They're speaking to themselves. And Jesus essentially says, which is easier to verify? Let me raise your bet. And in order that you might know that I do have authority, here's what I'll do. Get up. Walk. If Jesus blasphemed and forgiving, how in the world did he have the power to heal? How does he know how this man's standing is with God to say that he's forgiven? The point of all of this is the question that disciples need to ask in order to grow. Who is this man? For those of you who are Christians here this morning, you know Jesus. But do you know him so well that you've lost the wonder of what he can do? 
this man who can control nature, this man who can protect from spiritual forces of evil, this man who can forgive. He is God. And to his disciples, to the demons, and to the despisers, he will prove who he is. If you will receive his authority, whether you receive his forgiveness or his justice, is up to you.